0: Tonight I'd like to speak about compassion, compassion for ourselves, compassion for other people. The feeling or mind quality of compassion comes from or is born from the awareness of suffering. Compassion is the spontaneous response of an open heart to the experience of suffering or pain. When our heart is open and we can feel the suffering, the spontaneous, the natural response of that openness is the feeling of compassion. Where is the suffering? that elicits this response. Where do we find this suffering? We find it all over. We find it outside in the world, in almost any domain of experience. You know, in economic inequality, in social injustice, in political oppression, in interpersonal suffering. That's so obvious if we can even just begin to take a look at what goes on in our world. Begin to see the enormity of the suffering that exists for so many people. It exists in our own mind and body. Somebody in the group, it was either today or yesterday, made a passing comment about not wanting to suffer and the response of the Buddha to that, better not to be born. Given the fact that we have a mind and body inherent in that, inherent in the experience of life is suffering. You know, the body gets sick, it gets diseased. It gets old. It dies. Usually these are painful processes for us. The body the body falling apart in one way or another. As is in is inevitable. It's not that this experience of suffering that we have from time to time, it's not that it's a mistake, as we often view it, but rather it's inherent in conditioned existence. When things come together, they also have the nature built in to come apart. So to begin to open to that, because the only possibility of compassion for ourselves, for other people, Is if we begin to become aware or open or become sensitive to the suffering that's there, that's here. And there's suffering in the mind, you know, for all of us. Fear, discontent, wanting, hatred, anger, violence, all those mind states that are so tight, so burning. Have you answered the koan of the other night about why you move? Have you investigated that question? Tonight I'll give the answer. It's very interesting to pay attention in a careful way to what our experience is about. A huge proportion of the time our motivation to move comes to alleviate pain, to alleviate discomfort. We're sitting and we just feel a little restless or a little pain or a little tension. Straighten the back. Now, at the end of the hour the, the knees hurt so much. Stand up. Why stand? Why get up from one seat? Because it gets too uncomfortable to go on sitting. Okay, so you go walking. Fine. Why stop walking? Why not just walk and walk and walk and walk? If we get tired, we want to alleviate the walking, we come back and sit. You know, why do we eat? So much trouble, especially when you eat so mindfully. (laughs) You know, so slow and laborious. Why? Why bother? It's to alleviate the pain of hunger. It feels uncomfortable when we get hungry, so we alleviate that pain. Why do we go to the bathroom? To alleviate the discomfort of it. Why do we sleep? You know, we just get so tired of knowing. All day long, it's knowing the sight and the sound and the smell and the taste, over and over and over and over and over. We get tired of it. So, oh, check out. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of suffering in all of our lives, but we we don't pay attention to it. You know, we we not we don't become aware actually of what's driving us or what's moving us. And as long as we're not aware of it. So then, our hearts don't open to it and this response of compassion doesn't grow. If suffering is the condition for compassion, and there is so much suffering in our lives, and the lives of other people, one might ask, why isn't the world a more compassionate place? There's so much suffering around, and suffering is the cause or the condition for compassion. Why is the world not more compassionate? Why are we not more compassionate? We're not more compassionate because we've been conditioned to close off to the pain to resist it. We don't allow it in. We don't allow it into our hearts. And because we don't allow it in, because we push it away, so there's no chance then for the response of compassion to flower. What kind of resistance do we have? It's helpful to see the ways in which we keep the experience of unpleasantness or suffering or sorrow the ways we resist it, and keep it outside. Because that's what closes us off. It's that resistance. Something you're quite familiar with now, and have worked with a lot, is the resistance we have to physical pain. Have you watched your mind in response to pain? What does it do? Can It totally open to it and surrender to it, be with it, allow it, stay soft with it. Or does the mind pull back and resist and contract? There's one line from the third Zen Patriarch. His teaching he says, The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. Can, is it possible even to imagine, you know, the mind state that would not have a preference for pleasure rather than pain? The possibility of cultivating a mind of impartiality, of no preference, of a willingness to accept what each moment presents. So to take a look at the resistance that's there because by paying attention to it, it's possible to let go of the resistance and again to relax into or settle into the painful sensation. We have resistance to, to unpleasant feelings or emotions. Now, Each of us has our own little bag of emotions deeply conditioned that aren't all right to have. That we don't like and don't accept and judge and resist. And for each of us it's different. Some of us may not be willing to be with the feeling of loneliness. It's too much suffering so we we do everything we can in our lives to avoid feeling that. For others it may be sadness or anger or unworthiness, or self-hatred, or failure, incompetence. Emotions, they're part of the range of the mind. They're part of the mind. How do we relate to those emotions which are unpleasant? It's the emotional analog to the physical pain. Do we resist it? Do we push it away? Do we not accept it? Because when we push away and not accept and resist, we're pushing part of ourselves away. So we lead very fragmented lives. And we're driven by the energy of avoidance. We construct our lives around the avoidance of certain experiences. There's not much freedom in that. There's not much compassion. So it's important in the practice and in our lives to see, to see whether or not the mind is open to the whole range of emotion, the whole range of feeling that comes up. And sometimes it's unpleasant, just as with physical sensations. We have to learn how to soften, to open to those experiences. We resist physical pain. We resist unpleasant feelings or emotions. We resist certain kinds of situations that for one reason or another we don't like or irritate us. There's one story which illustrates this kind of resistance. One year I was sitting in Bodh in India in my little hut it was six feet by seven feet. And the door was just a kind of open, an open doorway, and there was a canvas, a uh, piece of canvas you know, over the door, but not all the way to the ground. And then one day, as I'm sitting, this little cat comes in and kind of climbs on my lap. I have a thing, had a thing, more. With cats, didn't like cats very much. But, you know, they scratch you, and didn't like them. So I took the cat and I threw it out. You know, more or less gently. Thirty seconds later, the cat comes running back in. You know, plops down on my lap. Throw it out. Comes back in. Throw it out. This went on for, I don't remember how long. It went on for a long time the throwing out got less and less gently. You know, because it was really annoying me, this cat. And I was getting more and more uptight and more and more resistant to the situation. That must have been feeding the cat. You know, because it kept coming back. Finally, after quite a long time, that cat forced me to surrender. Because there was nothing else to do. And so, okay, I just sit there. I let the cat sit on my lap. Fine, I go on meditating. Half a minute later, the cat gets up and walks out. (laughs) It was such a pointed lesson in the nature of resistance and how our resistance to a situation feeds it. And as soon as we stop resisting and just open to it, Situation gets okay. So to take a look, when we're in whatever situation for you calls up that resistance, to see if it's possible to make enough space for it. The same thing happens with people. Now, are there certain people whose energy you just can't be with? You know, this energy is just so difficult for you, and you feel yourself, you know, go away. <laughs> It's it's very similar to the cat. See if it's possible when you see that happening, and it happens to all of us, you know, in different times with different people. See if it's possible to pay attention to that. Instead of just going on without awareness and without mindfulness. Pay attention because that's a that's a good learning time, a good opening time. You're with somebody whose energy you can't you can't accommodate Notice that and see if it's possible to settle back. Get big. it's, It's as if you get very allowing for whatever their energy is. An example of how to do this, or an image of it. If you have a glass of water and you put some salt into it, the whole glass of water is salty. If you put the same amount of salt, or even a lot more salt, into a big pond, you don't taste the salt at all. When our mind is narrow and small and constricted, any little irritation, unpleasantness is abrasive. As we make our minds bigger, more allowing, more open, then even much greater disturbances we're okay with, we can accommodate. See if you can do that when you're in situations or with people that you feel the contraction happening. We have resistance to physical pain. We have resistance to mental pain, to different kinds of emotions. We have resistance to certain situations. We have resistance to certain people. There's another kind of suffering that also we don't see very clearly that we resist. And it's more subtle. It's the suffering or unsatisfactoriness that's inherent in the transiency, the ephemeral nature of experience. It's like everything is just arising and passing. Experience are like bubbles arising in the mind, passing away. There's nothing to hold on to. There's nothing whatsoever <coughs> substantial. Where's the big fantasy you know, that you had yesterday and spent all day sitting with? <laughs> you know? It was so big and so real and so important. Where is it? It's like everything. Our life experience is like that because in every moment it's arising and passing and changing. It's very ephemeral. So there's no substance there. For compassion to be universal, when we go from simply feeling compassion in particular situations to creating the possibility for compassion to be our response to suffering in the world, in ourselves, what's necessary is that we open to the full range and extent of suffering in our experience. When we can open to the full range of pain, of difficult emotions, of situations, of the transient nature of experience itself, then our response to the moment becomes one of compassion. I'd like to read a couple of poems by a famous Zen master, Ryo Khan. And I find them very poignant and beautiful because It's a poetry that's born out of an openness to suffering. And in that openness, you can feel and hear the quality of compassion that's present. Ryokan was an old hermit monk. I just wandered by himself and lived by himself. Light sleep, the bane of old age. Dozing off, evening dreams, waking again. The fire in the hearth flickers. All night a steady rain pours off the banana tree. Now is the time I wish to share my feelings. But there is no one. The vicissitudes of this world are like the movements of the clouds. Fifty years of life are nothing but one long dream. Sparse rain. And in my desolate hermitage at night, quietly I clutch my robe and lean against the empty window. The autumn nights have lengthened and the cold has begun to penetrate my mattress. My sixtieth year is near, yet there is no one to take pity on this weak old body. The rain has finally stopped, now just a thin stream trickles from the roof. All night the incessant cry of insects, wide awake, unable to sleep, leaning on my pillow I watch the pure bright rays of sunrise. It's wonderful. Because it's so open. It's open to the whole range of the human condition. To the loneliness and the sadness and the beauty and the solitude and the aches and the sleeplessness and the bright sunrise. And it's out of that openness that the compassionate response arises. When we don't open to the whole range of the human condition, to the whole range of our experience, when we ignore it, and that's really what ignorance means. It means ignoring the realities that arise for us in each moment. What does the mind do out of that ignorance? When we are closed off to the feelings that come for us physical feelings in the body, emotional feelings when we're closed off to the to the painful ones, to the sorrowful ones and we resist So then the mind reaches out for happiness in pleasant feeling. If we're closed off to the unpleasant feeling, what's the mind going to do? It's going to grasp at what's pleasant, thinking our happiness lies in that. And that's what mostly we do in our lives. Most people are conditioned to keep grasping for pleasant feeling, pleasant sensation. Thinking that that's where happiness is to be found. The problem with that is that it doesn't work. If it worked, it would be fine. Why doesn't it work? What's the what's the problem with that kind of desire and wanting? You know, the force of craving in the mind or the force of desire. It's a hunger. Just like there's hunger for food. Desire or craving is hunger for pleasant feeling. It craves. It craves a pleasant sight, or a pleasant sound, or a pleasant sensation, or a pleasant thought. And as long as we're caught up in that cycle of craving, of wanting, we actually tie ourselves deeper into this realm of samsara. This, this realm of suffering. Why? Pleasant feelings, in case you have not noticed yet, do not last. Do they? How many times have we experienced pleasant feelings in our lives? Countless. All kinds. We've had wonderful sensations in the body. Blissful. Fantastic ideas. Beautiful music. Delicious food. Has it made us happy? Has it brought the kind of happiness or contentment or fulfillment that we're looking for? It doesn't because they don't last. They're nice in the moment. And it's nice to enjoy them. But they're so empty. Empty of substance. So as long as we keep looking for happiness in a place where happiness is not to be found, we get very frustrated. Because our energy keeps going out. You know, if only I could have that, or have that, or have that, or feel this, I'll be happy. And it never works for us. It's like the story of Nasruddin, who's outside on the ground under a lamppost looking for something, scrambling around on the ground, and his friends come and say, you know, what are you looking for? Oh, my key, the key to my house. So they all get down on the ground and they start looking. A half an hour, an hour later, you know, no key, so they ask Nasruddin, well, where did you lose it? Oh, I lost it inside. (laughs) Why are you looking here? Because there's more light under the lamppost. <laughs> we, that's what we're doing. <laughs> we are looking for happiness where it is not to be found. <laughs> and any small degree of reflection about our own lives, it's not a question of belief, <laughs> just look to our experience. It becomes so obvious. Look also at the energy, the quality of the energy of craving. Not only is the fulfillment of it not ultimately satisfying because they keep passing away and changing, the very energy itself of craving is suffering. Something I suggested in the first retreat, which I would like you to do for a moment, Just imagine yourself embodying in your posture the energy of wanting. If if you were going to embody in your posture the, the energy of wanting or craving, what would it be? Just do that for a minute. Feel what it's like. Is it comfortable? <laughs> it's not. There's this is reaching out. The desire or craving pulls us out of the moment. It's a very uncomfortable, tense feeling. It's not. It's not balanced. It's not open. It's not relaxed. It's not settled back. And it comes out of the feeling. It comes out of the sense of impoverishment that somehow our present experience is not enough. We're not complete. We're not whole. And so we reach out for something outside of ourselves. And that very act of craving or desire or wanting is itself suffering because it's not coming from a place of completion, not coming from a place of wholeness. It's another reason why going after what's pleasant and resisting the unpleasant is not doesn't bring us what we want. It doesn't bring that state of, of happiness. There's another aspect to, to desire for the pleasant, which brings suffering. And that is understanding that our actions are not happening independently of the rest of the world. There's a karmic effect of every action we do. It's like you drop a stone, you know, in a pond, and the ripples out and they touch the shore. Very often we don't we don't respect or honor or take responsibility for the fact that our actions have effects. And in our desire, in our craving That itself is an unwholesome mind state because it's motivated by the force of greed and often the actions we do coming out of that are unwholesome. So we create, karmically, seeds of suffering for ourselves. All in the pursuit of happiness. Because we don't understand, we don't pay attention to how things are actually happening. Wisdom replaces this ignoring, this ignorance. When we allow ourselves to open to the full range of experience, and the practice, being an intensive retreat, is such a wonderful time to practice that opening. You know, you go along and you're sitting and walking, sitting and walking, then you come to some experience that gets a little too much. It's like too intense, or too unpleasant, or too something. And the tendency is to pull back from that. Instead of pulling back, that's exactly the place to relax into. Open up to that place of suffering, to that place of discomfort. Allow that to come in. Because that's how we open. We open our hearts, we open ourselves to a wider and wider range and scope of of life experience. And what's amazing, there's an amazing transformation that takes place. Because when when we take that energy that's bound up in resisting, whether it's resisting physical pain, or resisting people, or resisting certain emotions, or resisting situations, when we take that energy and it's a huge amount, you know, to keep all of this to keep all of this unpleasantness away from us, that's a big job. It's no wonder that we get tired. When we stop doing that, that's the energy that's transformed into compassion. When we stop resisting, stop keeping out, pushing away, and we let The suffering in, when we allow ourselves to feel the hurt and to feel the pain, to feel the suffering, that energy of resistance gets transformed into the energy of compassion because we've opened our hearts to that, to that suffering. when we come to this place of open-heartedness, out of that comes a wonderful field of manifestation of compassionate action. It's like the whole world becomes a field for us to respond to with compassion. And it's interesting how our attitude changes, even with people who we see doing unskillful things. You know, causing a lot of harm. Where formally we would be resisting that, resisting allowing that in, when we feel the pain and feel the suffering of it, we can begin to feel compassion for the ignorance of that person. We understand the karma that's being created, the suffering that that person is creating for themselves, like, how do we respond if we see somebody who's walking into fire? You don't get angry. If you see what's happening, you feel compassion and you try to help. When people are doing unskillful actions, it's like walking into fire. When we understand that karmic level, then our response to that will not be anger. And there will not be fear, but there will be a connectedness. Here's another poem by a Vietnamese His name is Thich Nhat Han, And he's very active in the Buddhist peace fellowship. Very active in the peace movement in Vietnam, in this country. He's living in France now. And he has the most all-embracing sense of openness. The name of this poem is Please Call Me By My True Names. And the I and the me in it is really the I and me of life or humanity. More than humanity, all life. Look deeply. I arrive in every second to be a bud on a spring branch, and to be a tiny bird with wings still fragile, learning to sing in my new nest. I arrive in every second to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, in order to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. I am the mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river and I am the bird which when spring comes arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I am a frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond and I am the grass snake who approaching in silence feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, and my legs as thin as bamboo sticks. And I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. (coughs) I am the twelve-year-old girl refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands, and I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom in all walks of life. My pain is like a river of tears, so full that it fills all four oceans. Please call me by my true names so I can hear all my cries and laughs at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up, and so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. A wonderfully expansive vision of the oneness, where there's not discrimination and not judgment, but letting it all into the heart, opening the heart out of which compassion flows. The range and depth of our compassion comes from the range and depth of our ability to open to pain, to open to suffering. So really what we're practicing here, in a very real sense, is the practice of compassion. Can we be compassionate to each sensation, to each thought, and to each emotion, and to each sound? As we do that, as Sit and we walk and we pay attention, we see that the awareness and mindfulness and compassion become one. Do you have any questions? over the head for so many thousands of years now. Um, is, it, is it possible to, to, to stop this? You know, it's reached a point now where it's not closed. It's, you know, very heavy highs there. And, uh, mm. You know, again, you're talking about the, the, the nature of that tree. Mm. To have leaves But You know, there's one book which many of you are probably familiar with. It's a wonderful little book, which... In some way answers that question. It's called the hundredth monkey, and it's a fantastic story. Some scientists went to Japan to study these monkeys who were living on the island. I may not get all the details exactly right, but I I think I have the gist of it. And what they did was they threw sweet potatoes into the sand and to see what the monkeys would do, and when they took them out, of course, they were all gritty, so it was difficult to eat. And then one young monkey got the clever idea to wash the potato off in the stream or river, wherever, and then could eat it. And then another young monkey saw it, you know, and then he did it, or came back and ate it. And then some of the parent monkeys, the mother and father monkeys saw, and they learned, and they did it. And pretty soon, most of the monkeys on this island were you know, washing their potatoes. And it got up to the point when 99 monkeys were, had learned you know, to wash the potatoes. And then one day, a hundredth monkey on the island also learned and went to the stream to wash the potato. And as soon as the hundredth monkey had learned it, the monkeys on all the other islands, independently, with no contact, also started washing the potatoes. Something's going on. <laughs> you know, in terms of, I don't know what to call it, you know, the collective power of consciousness or purity or, you know, the hundredth yogi. <laughs> Everybody else <will> starts sitting. <laughs> so in that sense, I think there's not to underestimate what we can do as individuals, because we're not doing it alone. It has, it has an effect. What's going to happen will happen. One one important distinction to make, especially well, with reference to different to different areas of suffering, is the difference between compassion and sorrow. In the Abhidhamma, in the Buddhist psychology, many of the wholesome states have what are called near enemies. That is, states that are like them but actually unwholesome. Compassion is a wholesome state of mind. Sorrow is the near enemy of compassion. Because sorrow responds to suffering, in sorrow is the components of aversion and fear. In compassion there's no aversion and fear. That's why in the face of suffering, when, compa- when the heart is open and compassion arises the mind is not the mind is not heavy the mind is not burdened it's an open loving mind you know think of the people somebody like Mother Teresa comes to mind who's such a visible example and it's been my experience in general that the people who are most, open and acknowledging of the pain that exists in themselves and in the world are the ones who are the most light and the most joyous. And the ones who spend all their time resisting it and not letting it in and not being open are the ones who are the most contracted and tight. It seems so clear how that works. When we can open to suffering, compassion comes and, and real quality of love and connectedness when we resist, then there's sorrow, which is aversion and fear and holding away. Do you see how how it connects so directly with our practice? That that what we're learning in each moment is this quality of openness, of letting in. You could really see the practice as developing compassion in each moment, for each moment's experience. Uh, frequently, one responds to pain and discomfort with anger. Can you talk to that? I think that's, uh, that's why people aren't more compassionate, even, even though they've suffered, because you know, they're angry about it. I think that the anger comes... The anger is not the first response. That The first response is feeling hurt. In some way it hurts. Right? Whether it's somebody doing something to us that hurts or a situation that hurts. Hurt is one of those feelings that we have very successfully learned to resist. It's like we don't like feeling hurt. And in that resistance to that feeling, so we move the energy out or react with anger. As a way of not dropping back and allowing ourselves to feel hurt, and it's amazing what working interpersonally, you know, when when there's an angry response, to see if it's possible to drop down and feel what's underneath the anger and to feel that level of hurt, the communication gets a lot more loving. When when you communicate, this situation is hurting me, than when you throw out anger. And it's a much more honest, accurate um, communication. So it's good to see what's underneath the anger. Not, I don't mean psychologically, I mean the feeling level, what's underneath it. And it's the same thing, it's, it's feeling compassion for that hurt. Not resisting it. It starts with a compassion. A compassionate act it doesn't always involve letting in. There's such a thing as compassionate aggression, if you will. There is compassionate aggression. If you are Zen master, <laughs> it's true. I. I can, there's the possibility of taking very, what seems to be aggression, actually, it would not be aggression because that would not be the mind state behind it. But it would appear like that very forceful action that's coming from a place of compassion. Yeah, it seems that you don't have to go to, to um, an extreme, um, as the Zen master might be able to. It seems there, that there are other examples hmm. and possibilities for that. Um, Like standing up when your leg hurts too much. Um. Right, that's a little further back. The response to the letting in of the hurt will be very different things. And so when I say the letting in, I don't mean that you let in and then don't do anything. You let it in and let the response be what's appropriate to that feeling. But you can respond compassionately if you don't allow in the feeling of that pain. You have, you have to open to the feeling that's there. With the awareness of that, then there can be a compassionate response, which might very well be standing up or whatever. Uh, 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 using that analogy. And something which you've probably experienced now, we, we are holding, most of us, a lot of tension in the body. You know, this, this big accumulation of tension, tension. It's impossible to respond compassionately as long as we're unaware of it. And we've learned to resist feeling it. What happens on a retreat is that as you sit and get more sensitive and more open, we begin to feel the tension that we're holding. In the opening to it comes the possibility of letting go. As long as we're not open to it, (laughs) it's like our energy is bound up in that identification. Is that...? There's another question, which is perhaps the same question, but it seems that at some point we have to allow ourselves to respond compassionately by degree um, and not wait until we're fully enlightened. Oh, abs- I did not mean to imply that at all. No, not at all. So, so, so I hope that's that clear. What we're looking at is, is the need for maximizing yeah. compassion. Right. You know, I, it's true that we, we want to maximize our openness, maximizing the compassion. But an example of how this process happens it's, it was given by this Thai teacher, Ajahn Chah. He said, if you go out to the forest and you try to lift a big boulder that's too heavy for you, you can't. You just struggle and struggle and struggle and it's too much and you hurt yourself. You can lift the stones that are within your capacity. And you go and you lift this one and then lift another one and then lift a bigger one. And as you go on you get stronger until you can actually lift the boulder. Right? In the same way there are situations that we can't open to. They're too much for our capacity at a particular time. And it's important to understand that. You back off, you relax a little bit. But you keep on you keep on working, you know, with with the stones that we can handle with the situations that we can, we find then that our capacity gets larger and larger until there's no limit to what could be handled. And that's, that's the process involved. And that's what we're doing. You know, as, as you go through the day, there's no point in sitting struggling with pain. At the point where you can't open to it, where you can't have some degree of balance with it, it's better to move, to change position, (laughs) because all you're doing then is sitting there fighting. Mm. And slowly you see that it gets, the mind gets more and more spacious. So guilt is extra? Guilt is definitely extra. (laughs) 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 Definitely. Okay, one last question. Whether or not you should tell a person you're walking into the fire. The the challenge is for all of us is the development of skillful means. The compassionate thing to do is definitely to point out, hey, you know, (laughs) you're heading right towards a fire. The thing is that very often, people don't see it and don't believe it. And so, to develop the skillful means of reaching into somebody's mind, actually making a connection. It's a tremendous, tremendously challenging and joyful aspect of the Dharma. And the Buddha was said to have perfected skillful means. He always knew exactly what was right. One story illustrating that. There was this one monk in the Buddhist time who had been given by another fully enlightened monk this meditation exercise of contemplating the, um, I think the decaying corpses or one of the unpleasant aspects, and this this person was just getting nowhere with it, yeah, you and know, just getting more and more agitated, more and more tight, and it came to the attention of the Buddha. The Buddha saw saw this person, and he said, don't do that meditation. Instead, through his psychic power, the Buddha manifested this golden lotus. And the nature of this particular golden lotus was that as the monk was contemplating, it would be changing or disappearing. And, the, and this person, the monk, in contemplating the impermanence of the beautiful, got enlightened. And the Buddha said that the reason it didn't work, the first meditation, is because this monk had been a goldsmith for five hundred lifetimes in a row and had been so attuned to to working with the beautiful that it couldn't handle, you know, the (laughs) skillful means. (laughs) You know, we do the best we can. I, I, one of one of my great joys is finding ways of getting into people's minds this <laughs> you know, just you know you look for a little <coughs> and it's just wonderful it's wonderful to play together in that way yeah, it's you know? Okay. (laughs) See if you can keep in mind this quality of openness, openness to the hurt, openness to the pain, openness to the suffering, that comes as part of life experience. And in that openness you'll find that the response of the heart to that is one of compassion. Find that the compassion grows. Thank you.